So here we are closing in on the, the coming to the end of the year. It's hard to believe in a way. And um, I'm sure many of you are very busy with holidays prep and family and things like that. And, you know, as Buddhists, as practitioners, this time of year is quite important. It's um, traditionally marked, uh, December 8th is marked uh, commemorating the awakening of the Buddha. And um, many people actually are in Sashin right now for Rohatsu uh, around the world. Um, and so I was, I was thinking about the Buddha this week, about his life, his teaching, um, how he is, how he's regarded in the Zen tradition. It really struck me that, um, at least in the Zen Buddhist sect, um, the Buddha isn't, isn't really given that much airtime, um, especially compared to other Buddhist sects, um, certainly not like Jesus in the, the Christian tradition, right? Who is the whole thing in Christianity. And it reminded me of an anecdote that I um, heard many years ago about uh, an interfaith conference that I think was held in Japan. Um, and there were representatives from all the various world religions and traditions, uh, including a Zen Buddhist. And as the panel discussion got underway, the moderator asked a question. They said, if you found out today that the founder of your tradition never existed, what would happen? How would you feel? And there were various answers. Some talked about feeling devastated, how how up how uprooting it would be some denied that it would even be a possibility right but the zen buddhist answered something like this he said it wouldn't make one iota of difference if the buddha never existed and the reason is is because the truth of awakening would not be affected in other words, Buddhism doesn't depend on the words of the Buddha or any other teacher for that matter, but rather on the experience of everyone who's sitting right here today, who's practicing all over the world. And it reminded me of the words of Zen master Joshu. A student once asked him, when the Buddha was alive, the people found deliverance in him. Now that the Buddha is no more, where should the people turn to? Joshu said, there is no such thing as the people. The official said, am, am I not here asking? Joshu said, if so, then what Buddha are you looking for? And then another time, a monk asked Joshu, what is meditation? And Joshu replied, it's not meditation. Then what is it, asked the monk. And he said, it's alive. There's no Buddhism outside of this here. You know, and it's recreated, it's created, recreated every time we sit and turn that light of awareness around. That 
is where Buddhism comes into being. And so when we come together to commemorate the Buddha's awakening, his enlightenment, certainly we celebrate him, we acknowledge that he opened the path, we make offerings, we chant, we bring forth some of the purported words of the Buddha, which we'll do a little later. We do all these things, but primarily, the way we commemorate the Buddha's awakening is by practicing. This is the Zen way. By doing the thing. And that is why Buddhism is very different from many other religious traditions. It's a living tradition. And the onus, the responsibility is on us. So today we commemorate the Buddha's enlightenment, but really what we're doing is we're celebrating enlightenment itself, right? <clears throat> Shakyamuni was certainly not the first person who experienced it, and he certainly wasn't the last. And the experience of awakening itself is a human thing. It's not something out there somewhere. And this is what I want to explore a little bit today in this talk of when we look at the Buddha's journey about his story, how is it relevant even now, some 2,600 years later? And if we could start in many different places, but let's start with privilege. And I think for the most part, we're all privileged to one degree or another. And we're told that the Buddha came from a wealthy family. In, in modern terms, he might be called a one percenter. You know, um, he came from a family that had everything, food, comfort, pleasure. And yet the thing is that despite those things, he suffered. And in the story, we meet this young man who's very restless. And much later in his life, the Buddha taught what he called the five hindrances, and one of which is restlessness, sometimes referred to as an inability to calm the mind. And I think we all experience that. But even so, we, we, we tend, for the most part, to ignore that restlessness, right? How many times I've heard some version of, well, I'm so privileged, I have a good job. I have a family, a loving spouse, I have kids, I have money. I shouldn't complain. I should be grateful. Right? And, and yes, you know, I would agree that there's probably wisdom in not complaining so much and being grateful. But often it's this is this feeling is because we think that suffering. When we think of suffering, we think of hunger, we think of deprivation, of physical pain, but we tend to overlook this very basic sense of restlessness that so many experience in their life, despite their circumstances. And this is where we all need to start. This path always starts with examining our own dis-ease to really own it, to bring it front and center so that we can do what in AA is called an honest inventory. I remember hearing a talk by a Zen student many years ago, 
These talks in our tradition are coming called coming to the path talks. Uh, in other traditions, they're called. Um, uh, well, I forget actually. Sheldon, do you remember? <laughs> Uh, what's that? I'm not sure. Sorry. Okay, no worries. Coming to the path talks is what sometimes they're referred to. Oh yeah, way seeking mind talks. And so this person talked about her upbringing, uh, her life, and all that happened to the up to the point where she came to the Zen Center. And during the Q and A, the question and answer period after the talk, someone asked her. I forget exactly what he asked her, but um, what she revealed was that her sister had died when she was a very young girl. And then somebody asked a follow-up question. They asked, do you think this had an impact on what brought you to practice, your sister dying? And she sort of paused for a second and thought about it, and then just said, you know, I never thought about it. Right? How in touch are we? with our lives. What brought us to the Zendo this morning? So the Buddha's story begins with suffering, his own suffering, and most importantly, the fact that he didn't try to ignore it. And I think the, the next relevant part of the Buddha's story for all of us centers around renunciation. <clears throat> Last week, I mentioned how the Buddha's leaving home was such a crucial step in his journey. And it's crucial for us as well, this home leaving. And, and sometimes it, it is quite literal that we, as I said last week, that we need to get out of our houses where we are so comfortable. And we need to encounter the teachings. When we're at home, we're, we're kind of lulled into like kind of a complacent, very sleepy state when we solely inhabit those places that are so comfortable for us. And so we have to renounce to some degree or another, which involves sacrifice, right? One of the ways we fool ourselves over and over again is to believe that we can have it all. This is one of these human follies. It doesn't work that way, though. I think, for example, that the, you know, the ever-elusive work-life balance that so many people talk about, article after article, book after book, but you know what? It's never going to happen. <laughs> and this is what Buddhism points us back to, this renunciation. We can't have it all. And the more we try, the more we suffer. In his book, uh, Callings, which is one of my favorite books, Greg Lavoie says this. He says, faith will eventually ask the faithful, what are you willing to give up to follow your call? Sacrifice, says Thomas More, is the shadow in the calling. Sacrifice is the shadow in the calling. It reminds, he says, it reminds us that we pay a price for every choice and that life doesn't hold still. It constantly gives over this for that. 
It wears down its banks and changes its course. It's a propeller that spins so fast it appears to be solid, but you don't dare try to grasp it. And so the Buddha, he gave it all up. He left his family, he left all trace of material comfort and devoted himself solely to his liberation. And this is what is required on the path. But we have to be careful here because some of our minds immediately go to, well, you're telling me I have to leave my family and give up all of my money and possessions. But it doesn't mean that it has to look one way or another. For us, it may be something very different that we have to give up. And when we look at the practice itself, the practice of Zazen, we find that this is what the practice is about. It's a giving up. It's all about renunciation, right? We all know the drill. We're given a practice, breath, focus, move, focus. This moment, focus. But in order to do that, we have to let everything go. We have to let go of our ideas, our image, our hopes, our aspirations, our memories, our knowing. Steve, I think that says low back. All of it has to get sacrificed in that 25 minutes of practice. But the question really is when we examine our sitting practice, how often do we do that? How often do we turn away from those elusive or those not elusive, those, those very compelling thoughts? I think we're okay. I think we'll just leave it. We're running out of battery here on the iPad, apparently. <laughs> Suffering knows no bounds. <laughs> so again, Master Joshu said this. He said, a clay Buddha cannot pass through water. A gold Buddha cannot, cannot pass through a furnace. And a wooden Buddha cannot pass through fire. This is known as Joshu's three turning words. Right? Everything, our ideas of Buddha must dissolve, must get burned up and melted down. So the Buddha realized that everything is impermanent, nothing is saved, and nothing is held back either. If we look into nature, we see that nature never holds anything in reserve. It simply gives everything she's got. What is there to hold on to? And so as a sign of renunciation, the Buddha cut off his long hair, we're told, and began to practice everything that was available. All the traditions of the time, he excelled in meditation, yoga, excelling in entering samadhi. But despite all of his efforts, 
ultimately was always unfulfilling because he always came back to his own mind over and over again, that restlessness. And eventually, and quite desperately, he took up the path of being an ascetic, a wandering homeless one. He ate less and less, denied himself sleep and comfort of any kind, but eventually, on the verge of death, he realized that this too was the path that was a dead end. And so even neglecting the body had to be let go of. It too was another path that was fruitless. And I think everybody can relate to this story, this part of the story, because how many times have we invested and sacrificed and given everything that we had to something, only to have to give that up too. Sacrificing the sacrifice. Everything has to go into that furnace. So we're told at this point, the future Buddha realized the middle path. While sitting in meditation, he was... Um, listening to a boat pass by with a lute teacher who is instructing his student and the teacher said if the strings are too loose a lute won't play and if the strings are too tight they will break and shortly after that the buddha took nourishment and started to heal his body right this middle path this path between extremes neither luxury nor neglect but more broadly, the middle path is really about this way of openness, of potentiality, of emptiness, where nothing is settled, not because of indecision, but because nothing is ever settled. Nothing ever finishes. Everything is constantly changing in flux. So practicing the middle way means that we know that we don't know. You know, reality rarely lines up with our ideas about it. And yet a caution here is necessary as well, because as, necess as, as, need as necessary it is to change with circumstances, there is something about sticking with something as well. Too often we change course when we need to stick something out. I think of how many times people come to Doksan practicing their first koan for six months, maybe a year or a few years and say some version. They've just gone back to the breath counting. I've given up. I can't do that. I just want to sit. I don't want to do this moo thing anymore. And of course, ultimately, we are the arbiters of our own practice. There's nothing I or any other teacher can say that is ultimately going to uh, be compelling. But in most cases, the skillful thing is to stick with it rather than turn away from it. And so while the Buddha gave up on the path of asceticism, he didn't give up. His resolve was intact. 
right? Too often when we switch practices, what's embedded in that switch is really the idea that I can't do it. That's what's embedded there. The doubt, the, you know, going back to doubt, uh, another one of these hindrances that the Buddha lined, outlined, he said that this is the most difficult of all the hindrances, this doubt, this doubt in ourselves, the doubt in the practice, doubt in our teachers, because once it gets a foothold, it's very difficult to work with, isn't it? But the way through it is to begin to doubt the doubt, to leave room in there, to inquire into the doubt. Why is this coming up? Where does this doubt come from? Rather than following, giving into it, sometimes standing up to it, which takes quite some courage, rather than giving it more airtime, Right? Even after the Buddha had regained some measure of his previous strength and settled in under the bow tree for his final push towards enlightenment, he was assaulted by doubts. His response was simply to reach down and touch the earth. This simple gesture. I think of also Master Gute, who every time was asked about Zen would simply hold up a finger. That was his response. Or Master Rosso, who every time was asked about Zen, would turn his cushion away and face the wall. All of these are expressions of the awakened mind, this simple gesture, this ground where we're no longer entranced by our thoughts, by those nebulous, dreamlike, ever-changing thoughts. So doubt, like all negative states of mind, arise from separation, right? From distance. Um, the other night in our discussion group on Tuesday, we talked about the difference between mindfulness and no-mindedness. And in mindfulness, there's always an observer, someone who's watching, someone who is taking note, who reflects, who tries. And this can be a helpful thing. And yet at some point, we even have to let go of being mindful. And this is what happened to the Buddha when he finally let go into samadhi. And then without any thought whatsoever, looking up at the morning star. And in that moment, there was nobody there. There was no distance. There was no doubt. And this is our final instruction, I think, from the tale of the Buddha. We need to close the distance in our life. So according to one account, the Buddha said, I and all beings simultaneously attain the way. This moment when there was no distance between self and other. I and all beings simultaneously, one body, right, attain the way. This is the panacea of Zen practice. But in order for that medicine to work, we need to practice it. 
This is how we honor the Buddha's awakening. By recognizing all the privilege in the world won't do it. Each time we turn towards things, more and more stuff, more and more experiences, more and more people, we reinforce that externalizing. Um, we also give up what needs to be given up on, recognizing what's not working anymore by giving ourselves fully to this path, by turning towards what needs to be accomplished and remaining open-minded to what is working and what isn't. So I wanna end this morning's talk with one of my favorite passages from the Buddha in the first lines, oh no, excuse me, the last lines of the fire sermon. And he said this, when the mind is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it has been liberated. Destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived and what has had to be done has been done. What has had to be done has been 